Let's pray together as we prepare to open the Word of God. Father, we rejoice this morning. We are a rejoicing people because even as we pray right now, we recognize that your eternal plan, your eternal counsel is going forward just as you had planned it in eternity. We rejoice this morning, Lord, because of Jesus Christ, because of his willing sacrifice on the cross, where he was tortured, where he was forsaken by you, Father, for a moment, the extravagant lengths that Jesus has gone to to redeem us, Lord, we rejoice. We are a rejoicing people, and we rejoice also this morning, Lord, in your giving us your spirit who brings us to life, who leads us along the path of righteousness for your sake, who walks with us and who talks with us on a daily basis. Lord, there is so much for us to rejoice in this morning. We pray now, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would bring up the volume on our rejoicing in what you have revealed to us and given to us, the food of your word. Lord, help us to rejoice, and may you draw alongside us now to be our teacher, our counselor, the one who directs our steps so that we are stepping away from selfishness and sin and toward mission for your namesake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Be with us now. Amen. If you are an employer uh, looking through a stack of resumes, most likely you'll only very briefly look at the name of the applicant, which sits there at the top of the resume. Usually you don't linger very long on the name of the person, you want to get to the part of the resume where the applicant has outlined his or her skills. Uh, And you also want to try to figure out what sort of character this person might have. But I want you to pretend for a moment that you are an employer in 1000 BC living in the ancient Near East. In that culture, probably you would linger a little longer over the name that is written there at the top of the parchment. Because in that ancient society, names carried much more significance than they do in our day. In the ancient Near East, a person's name was linked to his or her being. Your name said something true about you as a person. Your name gave insights into the type of character that you were, that you had. Your name said something about your nature, about your very reputation. This was the ancient Near Eastern understanding of proper names. The next portion of our story in Ruth which is set in the ancient Near East, of course, has much to do with a person's name. The idea in this passage is that this person's name is an indicator of herself. The name captures the essence of the person. That's the general idea working in the background here. 
So let's go then to Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 22, and our plan, as we do every Sunday, is to walk the corridors of this passage to see what it might yield for our edification and education. So let's listen to God now as we go to this text. Now, just as a little recap, last Sunday we had Ruth's uh, great confession, of course. Ruth, the Moabitess, had expressed her firm determination to go with her mother-in-law into Judah. And then we get verse 19. Let's read this together. So the two of them, that is now Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem, to the house of bread. And when they came to the house of bread, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Now, for starters, up to this point in the story, we've been reading along in Ruth 1, we have encountered the word Moab or Moabite a a total of five times already, while the word Bethlehem has only occurred so far in the story two times. But now, here in verse 19, notice this very carefully, we get two instances of the word Bethlehem, and they come in quick succession. So it's like the writer of the story wants our thoughts to be focused on this location now, on Bethlehem, the house of bread, where amazing blessing is shortly to take place. Naomi and Ruth are walking into the town of Bethlehem, and the the very sight of these two women stirs the whole town. Suddenly there is a buzz on the streets of Bethlehem, and the women of the town stare intently. They stare at Naomi, and they are a little bewildered. They are a little shocked now. Is this Naomi? It, it, It almost looks like it could be her, but, but this isn't how we remember her from years ago. This person coming toward us, she, she resembles Naomi, but she looks so ashen, so worn out. Is this Naomi? We remember the Naomi whose face was bright. The Naomi who had had a skip in her step. Is this her? Now just before we go to verse 20, do notice that so far, as Naomi and Ruth both come trudging into Bethlehem, the women of the town have effectively ignored Ruth so far. Their attention is concentrated solely on this person who they think might be Naomi. Ruth is ignored. Verse 20, Naomi speaks. Naomi wants to discuss her name. Again, a name in this ancient society was a significant indicator of your actual person, your self. 
Naomi says to the women, you're wondering if I'm Naomi? Well, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant or pleasant one. Don't call me that because pleasant doesn't match me. It doesn't match my life. No, call me Mera instead. Mera suits me far better. And we ask, what is the deal with this name Mera that Naomi now prefers for herself? Well, Mera derives from a Hebrew verb, the verb marar, and that Hebrew verb means to be bitter, to be emotionally distraught, to be bitter, to be emotionally distraught. Another related noun from the same word group comes in Exodus 12, verse 8, the noun meror, which in that verse describes the bitter herbs in the Passover meal. And then, of course, in Exodus chapter 15, we have the people of God at a place called Merah, aptly named because of the bitter water that was at that place, which had caused the people to be bitter and to grumble against Moses. The upshot of all of this is that this name Merah here in Ruth 1.20 means bitter. And Naomi believes that bitter is a more fitting name for her than Naomi, pleasant, because in her words, Shaddai, the Almighty, has dealt very merar, very bitterly, with me. What she's saying here is this, that that. I may as well take a name that reflects my experience. Shaddai has dealt very marar with me, so call me Mara, call me bitter, please. Call me the embittered one. Naomi's request for a name change is a request to take her from a positive name, pleasant, to a far more negative name, bitter. Now, there are several instances in the Bible where God does the opposite with people. So, for example, God gives Abram the new name Abraham, which is a far more honorable name. And God gives Jacob the new name Israel. And Jesus gives Simon the new name Cephas, or Peter. And for the disciples, Jesus makes the name servants obsolete as he renames them friends. But Naomi, she does the reverse of this trend. Naomi wants to degrade her name from pleasant to bitter. Now, in what she says here in verse 20, Naomi actually stands in the company of a person like Job. 
In Job 27, verse 2, Job, in his distress, he had said that, in a very like manner to what Naomi says, he had said that Shaddai had made his soul marar. That Shaddai had made his soul bitter. Job 27, verse 2. At the very least, friends, what we can say is that in the case of both Job and Naomi, at the very least, in their pain, in their adverse conditions, at the very least, they saw a connection between their situation and God. At the very least, they maintained a connection between the pain they were experiencing and God. In other words, their adversity had not caused them to reject God or to stop believing in him altogether. Both Job and Naomi connect their pain with God, even if we want to say that the connection that they make might somehow be distorted or murky. Again, the whole reason that Naomi was now challenging her identity, challenging her name, was because, in her words, Shaddai, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. In Naomi's way of thinking, God was at fault for her experience, her bitter experience. The question we might ask here, if we've been carefully reading the entire story up to this point, the question we might ask is the question, Is Naomi's perception of God a totally accurate perception? Is it accurate? Yes, Naomi had experienced immense pain in the loss of her husband and her two sons. There was no denying the pain. God had given and God had taken away, and all of it had knocked the breath out of Naomi. But, and I want you to listen, but, what about the end of the famine and food being back in Bethlehem? Was that God dealing very bitterly? With Naomi? And was Ruth's outstanding, astonishing commitment of love to Naomi, was that also God dealing very bitterly with Naomi? The point is that it is perhaps the case that in the midst of her pain, perhaps because of her pain, Naomi is here expressing a distorted view of God. In what she says here, Naomi seems to be forgetting or ignoring the blessings 
that God was working in her midst. Naomi is forgetting or ignoring the blessings because she is so stuck in the pain of her life. Naomi is just so human here, isn't she? She's just so human. I think if we have suffered real loss in our lives, we can relate to Naomi here. We, we can tend in our pain, we can tend to get hermetically sealed into our if affliction, in the pain of the thing. We get stuck there, sealed there. But we learn right here in the Word as we've read Ruth chapter 1, we learn that God is still at work for our blessing in such moments. Oh, that we would open our eyes and behold his goodness even in our pain. Well, we want to venture forward to verse 21 where Naomi continues to speak, but before we do that, Notice, again, that for two whole verses now, verse 19 and verse 20, Ruth has been sidelined, ignored. Ruth is there with Naomi, but the women of the town and then Naomi herself, they all ignore Ruth. It's all about Naomi and the women's perception of Naomi. Ruth is ignored. Let's go to verse 21. Naomi continues, I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. And here, those words, full and empty, refer to Naomi's family. When she had gone away from Judah toward Moab, she had been full full with a husband and two sons. But Yahweh had decided, Naomi says, Yahweh had decided to bring her back empty. That is, to bring her back to Judah without any of those three people whom she had loved. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. And I want you to listen to this, because I think this is important here. As Daniel Block, in his commentary, as he points out, as he's looking at the original Hebrew text of Ruth here, he points out that the two subjects in this little phrase, the two subjects, so the I that Naomi speaks of herself, and then the name Yahweh, these two subjects in the original text, I and Yahweh, are positioned at opposite extremes of the phrase in the original Hebrew text, so that if we read it literally, the Hebrew reads as follows, I, full, went away, but empty, brought me back, Yahweh. Daniel Block comments on this, I and Yahweh at extremes, and he says, by having the subjects of the sentences occupy the extremities, Naomi pits herself against Yahweh. I, full, went away, but empty brought me back Yahweh. But now, 
We wonder how Ruth felt at this moment. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes. Oh, you're, you're empty here, are you, Mom? What does that make me? I thought I just committed my life back on the road, committed my life to you. I guess I count for nothing if you are saying that now you are empty. Well, of course, Ruth doesn't say any of that in the text, but Naomi's words here about being empty seem like they would be hurtful toward Ruth. Barry Webb says this. I want you to listen. He says, by using this word empty, Naomi values her daughter-in-law who has forsaken everything to follow her and pledged undying loyalty to her. Naomi values Ruth as nothing, perhaps even as an embarrassment, the one remaining evidence of her entanglement with Moab, which she has failed to shake off. You almost get the sense here as you read Naomi's speech that in her pain, Naomi has become quite self-absorbed, which can happen to us when we are in pain. And perhaps one indication of this is in verses 20 and 21, what we notice is that Naomi uses the word me seven times, seven times in two verses. Naomi is so focused on herself, her experience, her circumstances, that she can't see Ruth, who is standing right beside her. Right now, Naomi is ignoring, listen, she's ignoring the very person standing there beside her who will be God's instrument of blessing toward her. In verse 21, Naomi continues her speech, and now it's back to the issue of her name. She says, Why call me Naomi, pleasant, when Yahweh has testified against me and Shaddai has brought calamity upon me? Again, what's Naomi doing? She's pointing the finger at God. He's the reason why people should now call her Mera. It's God who has testified against me, Naomi says, as if Naomi, this is court language, so it's if, as if Naomi has been a defendant in court and God has come along with his overwhelming testimony against her. He has testified against me. And, she says here, it is God who has brought this calamity on me. God has done this. Again, in claiming that God has brought calamity on her, Naomi is joining an entire course of other saints in Scripture. People like Moses, who once claimed that God had brought evil upon his people. God had done that. Exodus 5.22 Moses, who claimed later that God was dealing ill with him. Numbers 11.11. Elijah also wondered aloud at God. Why had God brought calamity on the widow who Elijah had been sojourning with? 1 Kings 17, verse 20. And of course, 
Job. Job again, we've already mentioned him. Job said in Job 16, listen, that God had worn him out. God had shriveled him up. God had torn at him. God, he says, had hated him. Friends, it's a strangely comforting thing, is it not, to find in the Scriptures those sorts of claims and those sorts of conclusions that people make about God because, it's comforting because, you and I can often feel the same way. God doesn't like me. God has worked calamity in my life. Again, we need to point something out that's very important that Barry Webb has pointed out, and that's this. That as Naomi says this sort of thing about God, that God has brought calamity upon her, as she says that, at least she is operating under the assumption that God still controls the universe. At least there's that. Even if we want to fault her with having a, a rather distorted perception about God, at least she is connecting God with her difficult experience. In her pain, she has decided, I'm sticking with God. I'm not going to walk away from him. At least there's that. But again, what, what is her perception? Her perception is that God this is what she thinks about God. God is a calamity-bringing, bitter-dealing judge. There's no sign anywhere in the text that Naomi allows for possible gracious gestures from God. She seems unable to allow for his grace, even though God has been, we've seen him, he has been at work infusing graces into her broken life. He's been doing that. In your pain, my friend, whatever it is, in your pain, don't shield your eyes from God's graces. Well, as verse 21 ends, Notice this, we get no response whatsoever from the women of the town. Those women who had asked whether this was indeed Naomi. The women are silent after Naomi's speech. Probably, I think, they are a little taken aback at Naomi's thunderstorm sort of approach. They don't have a reply to offer to her. And Ruth... For her part, she's been silent since verse 17. Ruth has been ignored by Naomi, ignored by the women. Not a particularly celebrative entry into Bethlehem for this Moabite woman. Our last verse this morning is verse 22. So Naomi shoved. She returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. Notice that. Is that not wonderful? 
It's like the narrator of the story says to Ruth, it's like he's speaking to Ruth, whispering to Ruth. He's saying, Ruth, while Naomi and the women of the town failed to acknowledge you in this scene, I won't. The narrator, at least, is careful to remind us of Ruth's presence here. Ruth the Moabite, Naomi's daughter-in-law, was with Naomi here. Both of them had shoved, had returned from the country of Moab. So the narrator, again, acknowledges the presence of Ruth. And then the narrator closes chapter 1 by saying that Ruth and Naomi came to Bethlehem. They came to the house of bread when? At the beginning of barley harvest. Very significant. I want us to notice the narrative art, the narrative art of this first chapter of Ruth. In the very first verse of the story, in Ruth 1.1, we had mention of a famine in the land of Judah. There had been an absence of food. But now in the very last verse of this section of chapter 1, we have harvest. Growth and plenty have returned to the fields of Judah. I wonder, my friend, have you been tracking the kind blessings that God has been orchestrating in the story so far. In the midst of Naomi's grief, in the midst of her horror, in the midst of her pain, God has visited the people of her homeland, giving them food, verse 6. And in verses 16 and 17, God has given Naomi the harvest of Ruth's loving commitment. And now here at the tail end of chapter 1, it's God who can be credited with this barley harvest. Naomi's perception was that God's hand had gone out against her, but now, as chapter 1 ends with this mention of barley harvest, we have to say, as Lau and Goswell have said in their book, we have to say that God's hand was extended toward Naomi in blessing. It seems that the minor key that began this story is now modulating into a major key, into a happier key. As the chapter ends, you get the sense that good things are about to transpire in the lives of both Naomi and Ruth. There's harvest here, and the question is, might there be a spiritual harvest of some kind, a spiritual harvest that will actually overshadow the agricultural harvest? I want you to stay tuned. But isn't it interesting, as we were noting earlier, as we wrap this toward a close, isn't it interesting that Ruth is effectively ignored throughout this passage? Ruth is ignored by the women of Bethlehem, and Ruth is ignored and even slighted by Naomi. Going back to verse 19, just for a moment, as the narrator speaks of both Ruth and Naomi, the narrator is at pains to use terms like the two of them came into Bethlehem and they came into Bethlehem. Twice 
he, he says that. And the whole town was stirred because of them. So it's they and them. Throughout verse 19, two women are coming into Bethlehem. But then, beginning at the tail end of verse 19 and into verses 20 and 21, Ruth is relegated to a place of invisibility. She becomes invisible. It's all about Naomi now. Naomi's name, Naomi's experience, Naomi's pain. Well, again, there is what Christopher Ashe calls a delicious irony that is at play here. The irony, to borrow from Christopher Ashe, the irony is this, that as Naomi stands there, as she stands there carrying on about her emptiness, Ruth stands by, apparently unnoticed, and Ruth is the very person who will bring an end to Naomi's emptiness. Let's think about Ruth in this moment. In being unwelcomed like this as she comes into Bethlehem, and in being ignored like this, Ruth is a shadow of Jesus. Jesus Messiah comes, and in the words of Isaiah 53.3, Jesus is despised and rejected by men. People hide their faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Jesus is not received by his own people, John 1.11. Jesus came as the God-man, standing there beside a whole range of bitter Naomi types like you and like me, and he was rejected. But the delicious, glorious irony is that as we stand there like Naomi, complaining and sinning and voicing our bitterness at life and maybe shaking our fist at the universe, Jesus stands there beside us ready to save. He stands there ready to save, ready, ready to redeem. This rejected, unesteemed one, the man of sorrows, stands ready to save. He goes so far as to experience execution, Roman style, in order to atone for the sins of bitter people like you and I. Who is it that the hand of the Lord has gone out against? Is it really Naomi? Or is it Jesus with our sin on him? hanging on the cross. If you want to talk about God's hand going out against someone, you go to Isaiah 53 verse 4 where you find the crucified Jesus smitten by God. And you go to Isaiah 53:10 where you find the crucified Jesus crushed 
in the will of the Lord. You find Jesus put to grief by the Lord. The hand of the Lord went out against Jesus. And why? Why? Because of our sin. Because the sinless Jesus took our sin to the cross and in the presence of the blazingly holy God, that sin that he is carrying must be penalized to death. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus dies as our substitute. He dies the death that each of us deserved for our sin. It's Jesus and not Naomi who can truly say, with the nail marks on his hands to prove it, that willingly I went to the cross there to have the hand of the Father go out against me so that you, sinner, could be redeemed in the eternal plan that my Father designed. Naomi's difficult life experience brought her to that place where she insisted that her name be changed to Mara or bitter. Jesus' experience of taking the sin of the world on his back and dying a cruel death, it also had an effect on his name. In the case of Jesus, his obedience in the cross and resurrection resulted in the Father exalting and honoring the Son to the point where the Father handed over to the Son the name that is above every name. You see, it's not the name Yahweh that we find in the New Testament. It's the name Jesus. That name Jesus is the highest, most exalted name in all the universe. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. Well, as we wrap this up today, a little application, I ask you this question, and I want you to think about this. Is there a person in your life right now who is bitter? Who is a Naomi? Who is rather self-absorbed, not very thankful, and not totally fun to be around? Is there a person in your life like that? If so, my believing friend, if so, I would encourage you to do this. To get on your knees and prayerfully, very meditatively, recall the fact that there was nothing in you that invited God's love in Jesus. God set his love on you, on me, out of his sheer grace. In grace, he sets his love on people who are stuck in bitterness and stuck in rebellion. It was for sinners that Christ died, not for lovely people, 
with characteristics that attracted his love. No, the cross was undertaken for unthankful people, for self-absorbed people, for wicked people. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Remember that fact about yourself, and then in your prayer, beseech God, plead with him, ask him earnestly and with all humility, ask him for his divine grace to be operative as you relate to your difficult Naomi. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for a text like this that we've looked at today, which is a reflection of us as we are walking through pain, affliction, hurt. Uh, There's so much about Naomi that we can empathize with that resonates with us because indeed it's us, Lord. But we thank you also for the broader, glorious, delicious truth that you reveal in Ruth chapter 1, that in the midst of what we walk through, you are always at work for our good, always at work for our blessing. Lord, you are a great God and we love you. We adore you. I pray, Lord, that as we walk into this week, you would step beside us, that we would keep in step with your spirit, that we would please and glorify you, bring everything to prayer, pray without ceasing, and live our lives in union with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, and welcome back. It's taken us five Sundays now to go through Ruth chapter 1. Uh, We've been going at it in a sort of uh, leisurely pace. What I want to do here today is just to give you a survey, a retrospective survey, a review of Ruth chapter 1. Now, if you have been tuning into both uh, the Sermons on Ruth and these 1225 Live episodes, I want to thank you for that. Um, The concern that I have in doing both sermons and these episodes is that we would really own Uh, the book of Ruth. Really listen to what God is saying to us in this book. Now, the very first verse of the story, Ruth 1.1, that verse gives us lots of important information. Historically speaking, uh, we learn that the story is set in that rather chaotic time of the judges. Agriculturally, we learn that there is a famine in the land, and we might also say theologically we learn that there's a famine in the land. Probably that particular famine had been sent by God uh, as a result of the people's obstinate wickedness. Nationally speaking, uh, we're dealing with a family who hails from Judah, and this family, of course, makes the move. They make the decision to travel into Moab in order to find food there, and they make that move without any explicit word from the Lord to do so. And then while they're in Moab, uh, the two sons of the family take Moabite wives. And so now the total number of people is up to six. Three of those people die in fairly short order. Uh, First Elimelech, and then both his sons, Mahon and Kilio. So then we have three women. We have Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. 
Naomi sets out to Shuv to return uh, to her native Judah, to the Promised Land, because she had heard that Yahweh had given Lachem, back in Bait Lachem, in Bethlehem, he had given food. So she sets out to return. And her two Moabite daughters, Ruth and Orpah, or daughters-in-law, I should say, uh, they also are said in the narrative to be returning to Judah, which is interesting because, of course, they've never been to Judah, as, as far as we know. Um, but the deal there is that they are daughters of Lot. They are descendants of Lot. Lot, of course, had left the promised land or had turned away from the promised land uh, back in the days when he was with Abraham. Now these two daughters-in-law of Lot are returning into the promised land in that broader sense. Along the road, Naomi mounts a case against Ruth and Orpah continuing uh, with her into Judah. And in that moment, Naomi invokes the name of Yahweh and prays his chesed, his kindness, uh, to be uh, apparent in the lives of both Ruth and Orpah. And of course, that theme of chesed uh, will become a very prominent theme in the story of Ruth. So now, there on the road, the question is, which way will Ruth and Orpah turn? Of course, Orpah decides to follow the common sense, uh, practical advice of Naomi. She turns back and starts heading back to Moab. Ruth, for her part, cleaves or clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, and then we have Ruth's uh, great speech, her speech of love and commitment and great faith. She's going to stay with Naomi and go into Judah. So Naomi and Ruth then continue together uh, into Judah, into Bethlehem, in fact, where the women of the town, uh, when they see Naomi and Ruth coming, they can't believe their eyes as they look at a rather haggard-looking Naomi, uh, very much looking different than she did uh, at least 10 years earlier when they had seen her last. And Naomi, in that moment, of course, requests a name change. She says, don't call me Naomi, pleasant, any longer. Call me Mara, bitter. And as uh, Naomi and the, the, uh, the women of the town of Bethlehem talk together, Ruth is effectively ignored by everybody. She receives no official welcome into the town of Bethlehem. And Naomi is too self-absorbed in that moment to even introduce Ruth uh, to the townspeople. And then we have the last words of chapter 1, which are words of hope. They are words that are forward-looking as we learn in that last verse of the chapter that Ruth and Naomi had come into Bethlehem in April or May uh, at the beginning of barley harvest. As Bruce Waltke has said, in the book of Ruth, the agricultural is always just a step ahead of the personal. The agricultural is always just a step ahead of the personal. And what he means by that is that in this particular instance, this agricultural harvest, this notice we have of the barley harvest, is just a step ahead of a greater spiritual harvest, personal harvest, that's going to happen in the lives of both Naomi and Ruth. In terms of the chapter's connection to the New Testament, of course, our eyes, our focus turns toward Jesus, the bread of life, 
the one who comes to end our famine, our spiritual famine, and satiate our hunger. Jesus comes from the house of his father into a distant land. He is born onto this earth where Jesus is despised and rejected, uh, kind of like Ruth coming into Bethlehem and being ignored there. Jesus is despised and rejected, and yet he stands beside bitter, complaining uh, Naomi's uh, like you and I, uh, in order to bring the greatest blessing of redemption uh, that God has ever poured out. And then in God's greatest act of chesed, or loving kindness, Jesus goes to the cross, there to die for sinners, and Jesus calls those prodigals that he has rescued, that he has saved, he calls us to acts of chesed gestures of kindness toward our neighbor. So there is a brief recap of Ruth chapter 1. I can't wait to venture into Ruth chapter 2 with you. Stay tuned and be blessed.